Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Normand with us. I shall introduce him formally. JP Morgan, head of FX and international rate strategy. Let's talk about these markets, John. A vicious breakdown in sentiment, and I'm trying to understand what's behind it. What's behind it? It's a few things. It's uh, the macroeconomic data continuing to remain weak globally, even though they're not so weak in the U.S. It's the messaging from the Fed that they're going to be moving to restrictive over the next year, and it's the very near-term focus on on Q3 earnings and and this guidance that corporates are giving about the impact of tariffs. So it's, it's just kind of a, a very unfavorable confluence of events right now. You use the word globally. Um, that's been the story through 2018 so far. Mm-hmm. And for much of the year, US equities, US markets, US risk really held up against that. Mm-hmm. That's changed over the last couple of months. Why? It's changed, I think, because the earnings guidance is becoming more negative. And so because markets are always going to respond to, to, to catalyst, you're, you're finally getting something a little more concrete to pull down earnings expectations in the U.S. I, I don't think this is the definitive turning point lower in, in U.S. equities, because I think what we're adjusting to is a much more normal earnings environment of, of, in 2019, where earnings growth might be 9 or 10% instead of the 25% we've seen this year. And if you have 9 or 10% earnings growth, if you have uh, interest rates, which are kind of at neutralish levels, I still think the path for equities over the next three, six, 12 months is, is higher. But the handwriting's on the wall from the Fed. You know, the cycle doesn't have a, a whole lot of longevity left to it. It's maybe got another one year of good growth and then a, a m- much more challenging year of uh, in, in late 19. When do investors really start to price in that much more challenging growth story of late 2019? Well, I think when you look cross asset, the message is that investors have been doing this progressively all year. So you're right that it's U.S. equities that have been the, the, the standout yeah. outperformer, but this is really the only asset class globally outside of maybe U.S. high yield, which has given you positive returns. So non-U.S. equities are down, whether you're looking at DM equities or EM equities. Credit in the U.S. and Europe is is down if you're focusing on, on high grade. So I think there's been this progressive skittishness that's getting discounted across markets. It's a bit overdone to me, but I think there is a message there. People are, are quite nervous. So Morgan Stanley and Mike Wilson, the CIO over there has talked a lot about this rolling Excuse bear me, market John, story. Morgan Stanley is a, is this other bank? bank? Is this other bank oh, ran by a man yeah. called Mr. Gorman? But we don't have to talk about that right now. The rolling bear market that they've used to sort of characterize and frame these markets is that something that resonates with you? Then it, it resonates as a simple description of the price action. It doesn't resonate with me as the the proper way to invest over the next six to 12 months. Because to me, the idea that every market should be underperforming cash except for U.S. equities is something you should really only see if you think you're going into a recession yeah. in the next 12 months. So I think there is actually scope for that that wrecking ball to kind of roll backwards okay. a bit and give you some more positive returns on some non-U.S. equity markets. Most of that will be in particular EMs. It could yeah. be on some DMs later. So I, I think the pessimism is, is basically overdone. John, you write a, a very sophisticated research note for the less sophisticated like me, and I'm in the double leveraged all cash fund. But what is the allocation of stock, bond, and equity? If you're on the efficient frontier, how efficiency is your efficiency right now? I think the allocation needs to be modestly overweight DM stocks versus DM bonds. I still think the, the scope for positive returns exists in, in that particular sector. It's too early 
uh, towards the end of the business cycle to be this defensive. I think there are pockets of opportunity in certain emerging markets, mainly Latin America, over the next three months or, or six months. So, you know, if, if, you, if you look yeah. at that kind of array, there's not a lot to choose from. Right. But I think it's a broader set than what, you know, returns over the past year have delivered. John and I hear interview after interview that all pros across all asset classes are watching high yield bonds is an indicator of where we're heading and they're confident when they see that performance, that resiliency of the price of high yield bonds. Do you share that idea? Well, I, th I think that's too narrow a market to pin one's cyclical view on. I think if you really want to get the message for what's going on cyclically, you should look at, at credit more broadly and that's been worsening all year, whether you look at price down, yield up, price down, yield so up. I nailed that, and, John. And that was good. The, I like that. Well the, the spreads wider. I mean, that that tells you something about an, a slow erosion in in economic fundamentals. It's not the kind of thing that gives you a, a, a crash in in equities this year that's sustainable, mm. but it is kind of a a reminder that we're late in the business cycle. John Norman, late in the business cycle does not necessarily mean peak markets. Is is that essentially what you're trying to communicate this morning? It's, exactly, because peak. The, there's a difference between. Um, peak in uh, return momentum and peak in prices. And markets are clearly peaking in price, and I think that's overdone. What they should be uh, delivering is just much more moderate gains on, on equities and, and to a lesser extent in some bits of credit like, like high yield. I just want to get stuck into the intraday price action. I, I don't think you can read into any given day to sort of extrapolate out what may or may not happen in the future. But it is kind of interesting this morning, John, that you have equities in the United States really soft and Europe holding up, and not just holding up with stocks, but holding up cross-asset. Mm -hmm. Italian bonds are rallying, bonds aren't mm -hmm. really doing anything at all, and European equities are up in quite a significant way against the backdrop where US is really underperforming. Yep. What do you make of that this morning? Uh, to me, it, it says that there's just already a decent amount of pessimism baked into Europe. Because you look at the, the, the macro data that came out of Europe today, these disappointing PMIs, normally that should have implied um, wider spreads, much weaker equities, and and a much weaker currency. All you're getting is the weaker currency. So I, I think it just reflects differences in positioning. No. Where where people have risk, it's more in the U.S. right now. John Norman, thank you so much with J.P. Morgan, usually in London, visiting today in New York uh, at our interactive broker studios, which is a good thing. George Friedman of uh, Geopolitical Futures and without question, one of our great students of the Saudi-U.S. alliance. How broken is the alliance this morning, George? I don't think very. Uh, I think, you know, it's interesting to see how little has happened uh, aside from the rhetoric. But we have a basic interest with the Saudis. Uh, we have the Iranians spreading out over the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. A coalition is formed between, really, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, to block it. If we were to break with Saudi Arabia, uh, that, that coalition would be gone, and we would have a very hard time containing the Iranians. So the last thing we want is to have this turn into a kind of breakdown in our strategy. So everybody is talking, everybody is saying things. It is appropriate that they do so, but actions are not being taken. 
Within the word action is the action domestically. And we all read our Robert Lacey years ago, uh, the history of the Saud family. And, you know, I could go back and cite it as amateurly as anyone out there. This isn't the movie Lawrence of Arabia. This is reality. What's the reality for the royal family? And would you expect the crown prince to be shown the generational door? Well, remember, the Western media was lauding him over yeah, six weeks ago. Of women's dri- yeah, yeah. Of, uh, liberalization of women driving, uh, of his, you know, really ambitious plans for transforming Saudi Arabia from uh, an oil-producing country alone. Uh, he was a hero. Uh, he had enemies in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he had people who were appalled at his liberalization. He had within the royal family people who did not want to see this transformation, didn't trust mm-hmm. him, who saw him as a 31, 32-year-old kid who yeah. had no grounding. So he's got serious enemies inside of uh, Saudi Arabia. And the interesting thing is that this killing, uh, which appears to be about you know liberals in the West appalled at what kind of regime this is, actually plays out by strengthening the conservatives inside of Saudi Arabia, potentially. But to this point, um, you know, he's had a weird photo op with the son of the uh, person who was killed. And we've seen inside the kingdom him pulling buttons. He seems not to have lost power. George, what is your knowledge or experience of being at the King Fahd Air Force Base and Dhamam? Uh, Saudi Arabia, or the Eskin Village Air Force Base in within Riyadh as well. The any number of U.S. facilities there, the King Khalid Air Base and Kamas Mashayat, Saudi Arabia. These are operational and running air bases for whom? Well, the Saudis use them for their air force. The United States Air Force and contractors are supporting that air force. Uh, and to be clear, and to be clear, George, they can't do their air force without our contractors, right? Uh, pretty much so. They've gotten better over the past years, but they still can't sustain them. And we want them to have an operational air force. We don't want to be carrying on missions in Yemen, for example. So, uh, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship, not only between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but a very important one would be between Israel and Saudi Arabia. By reports, mm-hmm. the Saudis have purchased an Israeli air defense system called Iron Dome to protect themselves. Right. Well, tell us about Iron Dome. I mean, you know, I've covered it here live, the missile attacks and what appears to be genuine fear of the people of Riyadh. Iron Dome, a dome protects them from what? Missiles from Yemen? Uh, it would protect them from a class of low, fairly low-flying missiles yeah. uh, that could devastate their cities. Uh, the missiles out of Gaza uh, were knocked down by Iron Dome. Mm-hmm. Potentially uh, an attack from Hezbollah and Lebanon would be. Uh, well, attacks from Yemen, but more important, attacks from Iran on Saudi Arabia would be dealt with by this. Remember, the, the real game in, in the region is... Um, Iran. Iran is expanding and... Right. 
We've heard That's the, the key. George, George Friedman with us, folks, Geopolitical Futures. Thrilled to have him, particularly dovetailing off of Stephen Cook uh, the other day with the author of False Dawn. Okay, great. Everybody agrees Iran is the first order condition here, except none of the newspaper articles, Mr. Erdogan's speech, and the rest discusses it. We're looking at the Khashoggi murder as a distinct and discrete thing. Do you bring those two events together? I don't understand the murder. It, it makes, first of all, Khashoggi, who is he? Yes, he is a liberal writing for the Washington Post. He was also uh, the nephew of Adnan Khashoggi, a major arms dealer in the region. He worked for Turkey al-Faisal at one point, who was the head of Saudi intelligence. He had interviewed uh, Osama bin Laden on various occasions, which was a different ticket to get, difficult ticket to get. Uh, so he certainly had close ties into the conservative wing of the party. He was an enemy of, Kasha, of uh, the, the prince. He was opposed to him. But in the West, we always assume that anyone who opposes a repressive regime mm -hmm. wants a liberal regime. They might just want another repressive regime. In this case, he appears to have changed. He appears to have transformed his views. I'll accept that it's genuine, but why would you send 15 people to kill him? I mean, normally you want to be subtle in these things. It's as if, you know, Salman decided he deliberately wanted the Saudis to know that something was coming on. As they came through Istanbul Airport, uh, it was hard to miss them right. out of the airport. It, it yeah. just makes no sense. George, I've got to apologize. Anthony from Sparta emails in and says a pronunciation of a Saudi Air Force base I butchered. Kamiz Mushait. Anthony, thank you so much for that uh, clarity as I mispronounce uh, important air bases for Saudi Arabia and the United States. George Friedman, in the time that we've got left, what should be the response of the president? What should be the response particularly of what some would consider a lame duck Secretary of Defense, General Mattis? Well, they've given their response, which is they're shocked and appalled, and they're not going to change anything in our relationship. Uh, that's pretty much what uh, Erdogan has said, too. Uh, he's horrified, he's shocked, he's going to bring the individuals to justice, but he said nothing about breaking relations with Saudi Arabia or anything else. So what's mm -hmm. happened here is a really shocking murder. It's hard to understand the murder. Uh, and no one is going to change their basic right. activities because they're overriding things. One final question. Do you have an understanding of who the replacement would be for the crown prince? Is there an heir apparent to be the second position of the king? Well, who we have to remember, loves? first, the king has to be replaced. Uh, and replacing a king has happened in the past. It's happened by assassination over the past half century, century. Um, it is not a clean process. The king is the king. So to replace King Solomon's father would be a wrenching event inside of Saudi Arabia. It would lead to unknown instability mm -hmm. at a time when most of the region and uh, the United States yeah. really don't want instability there. George, thank you so much. George Freeman with a terrific briefing, founder, chairman, Geopolitical Futures. We continue Pim Fox and Tom Keenan with us. 
Diane Swank of Grant Thornton. Diane, uh, wonderful to speak to you. Um, I, I, I guess there'll be another day of a president going after the head of the central bank. At some point, this reaches somewhat of a critical mass. Are we near there? I hope we're not. Um, I think we're not there yet. What worries me is that um, some people have debated whether or not it's worse when an administration goes after a central banker from within the administration or publicly. Well, we know historically that when they've actually succeeded to do it, it has been through public means. Actually, the Nixon administration threatened Arthur Burns by planting a false story in the newspaper that then got him to acquiesce and ease to the 1972 elections, which contributed to stagflation. So we do know that it ha can have an impact. That's not something we want it to have. Um, certainly, we've already seen Volcker's remarks about how the Reagan administration was pressuring him on interest rates at a time he wasn't going to raise interest rates anyway. So it worked to his advantage. I think what's important is that we don't get too much perception that the um, administration could influence interest rates. That's where the critical issue is, is because much of the Fed's power is actually in the perception of its independence not um, in its actual actions. There's as much perception as reality of rate hikes that affects the Fed, and I think that's very important. Diane Swank, why is anybody surprised, particularly coming from President Donald Trump? I wouldn't imagine people are surprised, and hopefully that means that, you know, much like other things that we hear noise out there from an administration, we often discount it when it comes to financial markets. That's what we hope happens. But the reality is that we know that actions can become policy um, in the trade war. We are in a trade war with China that doesn't seem to be going away. Hopefully we will see the meeting with Xi and the president go more productively and back off and get China to acquiesce on some of the things we like them to do without going to a full-blown trade war in January. But these are things, you know, unfortunately, it's not clear when things and noise should be paid attention to and when it shouldn't be. Um, we know that the president can't fire the Federal Reserve chairman, and the Federal Reserve has a long history of being independent. It's also important to remind people that this rate hike cycle started in December of 2015. It goes back to the Obama era that the economy was already firming enough for the Fed to raise rates. And I think it's really important for, certainly your audience knows this already, but it's important to remember that the Fed's raising rates as an affirmation of the economy's strength, not um, as a means to kill the economy. So is this a political move on the part of the president ahead of the midterm elections? Well, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, I can't judge that. Um, it probably is. This is all, all people in politics are political by definition, I would assume. I think the more important issue to focus on is what is the Fed likely to do? Um, the Fed is going to yeah. react to the data, and this Fed is going to raise rates again yeah. in December. I think very likely I'd put a 98% chance on that occurring, barring some major collapse in financial yeah. markets between now and then. Diane, thank you so much. Too short a notice today, and we greatly thank Diane Swank for her commitment to our Fed uh, coverage as well. Pim Fox and Tom Keenan and on Politics Now, we go to Craig Gordon in charge of all of our political coverage in Washington, uh, to say the least. He is so discerning, he understands the distinctions between Ben's Chili Bowl up on U Street versus the fraud that it is at Reagan International Airport, where I dine uh, before I ship out on the Gulf Stream. Craig, wonderful to have you with us this morning. Right now, measure for us the tone of the nationalists you're covering versus the corrupt, power-hungry 
globalists that you're covering, language of the president. Who's got the upper hand uh, here this few number of days before the election? I still think I'd be rather be playing the Democrats' hand than um, the Donald Trump's hand. I think there is a lot of energy out there, uh, in in out on the hustings, as they say. Yeah. A lot of Democrats are pretty upset about how that Kavanaugh hearing went down. Pretty upset with the way Trump talks yeah. and acts, and I think that they have a lot of energy uh, behind them. And also, they also have the mathematics behind them. They only right. have twenty three seats to take the House, so that's actually not such a high hill to climb since forty some odd uh, Republicans have actually retired. So those are open seats yeah. and obviously easier to win. So the- Democrats still seem to have the upper hand there is uh, the politics of the nor of uh, the the day but of course it is not the politics of the moment is it about it is about suspicious packages and our political leaders washington craig gordon has too much memory of this just within the beltway don't they yeah, no, absolutely. And we all know that uh, very, you know, senior political officials mail gets screened. And I think today we learned why, because in this case, a suspicious packages thought to be potentially explosive devices were found in mail headed to Hillary Clinton in Westchester County, where, of course, she has a home with Bill Clinton. And then uh, to Barack Obama, we believe that one was here, uh, was headed to his uh, perhaps his home or his office here in Washington. So, um, uh, you know, this is not just political rhetoric now. This is this is scary stuff. And in this case, the Secret Service stop these packages. This, of course, comes just a day after a package was found at the home of George Soros, also up in Westchester there. So, um, look, this is where the political rhetoric that gets heated turns into something a little more sinister um, and obviously pretty alarming for any of us who cover these folks every day. Well, just to offer a little bit more detail here, the Secret Service says the packages were immediately identified during routine mail screening procedures. They were identified as potential explosive devices and were appropriately handled as such. Uh, One of them was a device addressed to Hillary Clinton, while another addressed to former President Obama. They were intercepted by Secret Service personnel in Washington, D.C. The agency in a statement said that the U.S. Secret Service has intercepted Two suspicious suspicious packages addressed to Secret Service protectees. And uh, the Newcastle uh, Police Department assisting the FBI and uh, Secret Service as well as Westchester County Police. Uh, Craig Gordon, does this mean that there are going to be increased security in place for the midterm elections and for campaigning? I mean, you know, security around the president uh, already quite high. It's hard to imagine this doesn't cause the Secret Service to reflect a little bit more on some of its procedures. You know, I'm not sure individual House candidates uh, out there, again, in the, in, uh, the 435 seats that are up, have a lot of Secret Service protection. I'm sure they have sort of private security. But look, anytime something like this happens, people tighten up a little bit and they get they, they have to think a lot harder about how they're doing this. And I mean, we already know the political environment is, is quite toxic. There's a lot of very rough language on both sides um, being thrown around. Sometimes, again, it takes a, a more sinister turn in the way it did with these packages, Presumably, um, but I think I think people are already on alert, and I think they'll even be more so after this news today. Craig Gordon, thank you so much. On short notice, as we follow the story of these suspicious packages uh, and some of our political leaders. John Lieber joins us on tax policy with PwC as well. John, wonderful to have you with us with maybe a more political tilt today than policy. Uh, tilt. Uh, Craig Gordon, they're talking about, well, you know, the Democrats may still get it done in the House, although I'd say that's a motion is swinging around right now. 
even if the Republicans were to win, would it be a new gridlock in Washington? You know, it's hard doing any kind of legislation these days. Um, you've got a 60-vote threshold in the Senate, which means that anything you do has to be bipartisan. And there's not a lot of bipartisan uh, kumbaya moments happening at, at right now. So it's really hard to do anything at all. And so who knows? Even if Republicans get, hold the House, um, you may see not a lot happening in the next two years. Well, just can you explain why? I mean, this is not like we're talking about thousands of people. Right. I mean, you've got 100 senators, you've got the uh, congressmen and women, and you have the executive branch. Why is it so difficult to get under a thousand people to agree on things that millions of Americans seem to agree on? Well, you know, it's not just the, uh, you know, 435 members of the House, 100 members of the Senate. You've got each one of them representing very diverse constituencies. And, you know, to win an election these yeah, days... But they're, the wait, 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 get... but, they're, but they're, their constituencies aren't that diverse just because of what you said, that we've got this huge polarization, that they're each just representing very single-minded supporters. Right. So the question is, who's coming out to vote? And if you look at who's coming out to vote in recent elections, it's the base that's winning you the election. It's not the uh, middle-of-the-road independent oh. voter who's coming out who's persuaded by your arguments. It's people who believe right. that you're there to fight for them, and they want to beat the other side. And that's what the senators and the members of Congress yeah. are responding to, and that's why compromise is so hard. John Lieber, and particularly with your experience with Senator McConnell, Frank Newport of Gallup was riveting yesterday about the quiet little thing nobody talks about, which is this will be a success if 36 or 37 or 38 percent of eligible voters vote. I mean, it's stunning, the lack of turnout in midterms, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think if you had a broader turnout, if people were more informed, you might get a different result. But this is the system we have. You know, you can't we don't have mandatory voting in this country and, and, and we probably never will. Um, you know, it's people have lives. They're not paying attention to the elections the way we are. Uh, you know, I think it's hard to people to feel informed about what's actually going on in Washington and get all the information they need. And because of that, I think that, you know, it turns people off from voting. And, and the people who do vote are the ones who are most exercised about a very narrow set of issues. And you see, you know, that's an incentive that politicians are responding to. Do you see the possibility of the Senate becoming a, a Democrat a majority? Or do you uh, contend that what the polls indicate currently that it will remain in the Republican control? You know, I think it's possible. I think the fact that you've got races like Tennessee uh, pulling away, you've got Democrats are just defending so many seats right now that it just would be unlikely. They'd have to have almost a you know, pitch a perfect game, basically, in order to make that happen. And that just, you know, you, oh, you can't rely on that. That's so called, that's called that, doing a Red Sox, just in case you It's right. called doing a Red Sox. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can't count on that. John Lieber, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Just a really wonderful perspective. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.